actually going to preach from the first eight verses of 21. I was meant to preach a couple of weeks ago, but I had a bag back, and very thankful that Michael Healy stepped in for me. And at that point, I was going to try and preach this and pick out some stuff, and I thought, that's just crazy. So I'm going to do the first eight verses, and then we're going to... I don't know. We'll see how it goes. It's only seven weeks till Advent, which is crazy. So we might still be in some of this into next year, I'm not sure. But I, I wanted to keep it together because it's just the most wonderful two chapters. It's just the most wonderful reminder for us of what is to come. I wonder if you know the answer to any of these questions. Do you know what the National Insurance Contribution Fund Does it fund the NHS and the police? Does it fund the NHS, the police and education? Does it fund the NHS and the state pension? Or does it fund schools and education? Or do you know who designed the Dumfries House in Scotland? Was it Sir Christopher Wren? Robert Adams? Sir Edwin Lightyens? Thank you. Inigo Jones? And in what, when was Charles I executed? Was it 1649, 1646, 1653, or 1658? Thank goodness that citizenship of the new Israel is a little bit more straightforward than citizenship in the United Kingdom. If you are a foreign national and you want to be a citizen in the UK, these are some of the vital questions that you have to be able to answer to be considered for citizenship. And as we come to this, and as we look to the new heaven and the new earth, of course there is just one question that comes. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God, of the new Jerusalem, of the new heavens and the new earth. And that is simply... Do you confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? We come here to the true purpose of the historic goals and purposes of God. We come to the full and the triumphant kingdom of God. Everything else is gone. And the focus of this book, it is written into the persecuted to a suffering Church, and the central promise of this book is God himself in the company of those who love him. Beasley Murray said that. God himself in the company of those who love him. That is the centrality of what we have in front of us here at the end of this book. And we're given the image primarily of a city. And as we come here and as we come to this point, each one of Christ's enemies is gone. Every opposition to the purposes of God have now been rendered completely obsolete. We see it now in all its fullness. Jesus reigns over everything evil. Everything evil, even Satan himself, has been cast into the lake of fire along with death and grave. And all that was and all that is destructive of this present existence has been removed from the picture. This morning I want to focus on the citizens of the city. In the next couple of times we come to this passage, we're going to look at the character and the challenge of that city. But in the first eight verses, I want us to look at what is, who are the citizens of this city? 
Firstly, we read in the first five verses of chapter 21, they are God's people. Have you ever had a moment in life where you've caught a little glimpse of what it would be like to live in perfect community and communion with God? A place of complete joy, of complete wholeness, and of complete peace. One of the examples that comes to mind when I think of this is when Victoria and I did some work in Zambia. We worked with a group of street boys and there was a group of boys who were giving their lives to Jesus. And we did what was called the Spiritual Emphasis Week where we spent time worshipping and reading together. We'd then eat and play some sports. And we would sing. And there was this wonderful reality for this group of boys that actually all the baggage that they had, which was an awful lot, It was an awful lot for these boys. But for that short period of time, that was just all irrelevant. Because Jesus was the focus. And Jesus was the centre. And for me, some of those times were just moments I remember of thinking, this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. There's a story I heard shared. A moment of a glimpse of heaven caught by a mother. The story was shared of, uh, of her son who had uh, significant uh, extra support needs. And he was largely confined to a highly specialised wheelchair. And the teenage boy was unable to speak. And, and his mum describes what it was like uh, for her to take, his, uh, take her son to a ski slope. And he'd gone up the mountain uh, with a specialist who takes people skiing. And they had a specialist chair so that he could go for a ride. And as she looked over to the ski lodge, there was just a row of empty wheelchairs. And she knew that all the people from those wheelchairs had been freed from that limitation. And that they were on the mountains and that they were enjoying God's creation. And for her, that awakened the sense of longing for home and for wholeness. It was a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will be like. I think in my own life and reflect on those that we've walked with that have uh, been grieving in physical pain and mental pain in woes that are so great you, you, you can't imagine them in your own lives. It can make us long for home. Do you know, heaven is the place where there is no not yet, but it is now. And we come, uh, I explained this a little while ago, I come to our first light bulb. Uh, This is one of our our, our study methods we're using with our teenagers. The light bulb, the question mark, and the arrow. The first is the light bulb. What stands out for me in this passage? This is what grabs me here in verse 3. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. Way, way back. Way, way back at the beginning when we had the first heaven and the first earth. When they were first created, it was created for the first people and their descendants to live in. God crafted and breathed life into everything that came to be existent. It came into existence. And in fact, it was perfect. And it was so perfect that God walked with them in the garden. We read that, don't we? Um, In Genesis chapter 3, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
It was normal. Adam and Eve dwelling in the presence of God Almighty. I have so many questions about that. I have so many questions about about how that works and what that looks like. And maybe one day I'll understand a little bit more of that. But for now it just blows my mind. And we come here in Revelation 21 to, to a passage that really should build some excitement in us. Because it won't only be Adam and Eve at the beginning that knew what it was to live like this, but we will too. Even despite all of this description and the jewels and the cubits, it's hard for us to grasp. It's difficult for us to imagine what the eternal city will be like. John calls it the holy city here. He calls it a prepared city in John 14. He calls it a beautiful city, as beautiful as a bride on a wedding day. There's so many illustrations that are given to us to try and indicate what the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth will be like. All of these descriptions are used for the church. And now they are used as images of the eternal dwelling place of God. Sorry, I should have made that a bit bigger. Firstly, God walked with man in the garden. And his sin entered the world. Secondly, then he dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And when Israel sinned, God departed from those dwellings. And later, Jesus Christ came to the earth and he, and he, he literally tabernacled amongst us. And of course, today God does not live in man-made temples, but in the bodies of his people and in the church as we gather, as we read in Ephesians 2. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, we are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Because way back before Jesus, there was the veil that stood before man and God. And of course, as Jesus died, that was torn in two. And Jesus opens for us this new way of living. And now God dwells today and believe us by his spirit. But you wouldn't always know it, would you? By the way that we can disobey God. By the ways that we can treat one another and talk about one another. The way that we can conduct ourselves. At times we can look at our churches. Certainly Paul reflects on it. Certainly in the seven letters to Revelation. Eh, to the churches it was certainly recognised. It says that's not a church. They don't really love God. They're not really that focused on him. There's not really any love there. Look at how they treat each other. And I think of the fifth of the seven letters. The letter to Sardis eh, in Revelation chapter 3. Where it said, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Do you know, even though the Spirit dwells in us here, in this fallen world, it is so hard to follow Jesus. It is so hard to love God as He loves us. And often it's even harder to love people in the way that God loves us. It is hard. It is hard to do church. It is hard to be church. But that's why it takes work. A wise woman said to me this week, 
that in this last year we have been growing. But we have not been growing together because we have not been together. We've all been growing, but we've kind of been growing in our own directions because we haven't been church as we know church. And that takes work. It takes work to grow together. And you know, we've not even scratched the surface in our understanding of God or what fellowship with him will be like. We know so little of God. We know so little of just the magnitude of his presence and power. Yet the little we know is still more than enough to blow us away. To bring us to our knees in repentance and to the point of salvation. But one day friends we will be perfectly in the presence of our saviour. We will know what perfect community and communion is. Is we will dwell in the presence of God and enjoy Him forever. Because you see, tears and death and mourning and hurting and pain are a reality for us right now. But they will not always be a reality. These things are very, very real. I don't need to tell you that in a world that is marred by sin. You might find yourself this morning marked by one of these things. You might be here this morning and just being here is deeply uncomfortable for you and incredibly difficult. It took a lot for you to come this morning. And if that's you, I say well done. Well done for being here and coming and gathering with God's people no matter how hard that might be. It can be hard being part of a family. Why? Because we're a family as every other that is marred by sin. We're not exempt or excused from these realities. But friends, we look forward. We look forward to the days when those tears, that death, the mourning, the hurting and the pain will no longer be a reality. When death and the grave And sin itself is gone. Do you know there's probably a reality for us that we'd have a lot less tears, a lot less sorrow and everything else if we lived as we should before God. Many of our sorrows are attached to to our sinfulness. But yet even if we lived perfectly before God, we would still have tears and death, sorrow and pain. But the reality will not always be our reality. Because you see, heaven only knows the peace of God. There isn't peace in heaven because Satan's not there. But there is peace because it is the presence of God. And soon we will dwell in that very presence. Because that is who we are. We are citizens of the kingdom of God as children of God. The power of God and the victory of the cross are too big for anything to come against. This stuff will not dominate our lives forever. The second observation I have in verses 5 and 6 is that the citizens of heaven are a satisfied people. Here comes the question mark, I think. 
Yeah. I am making everything new. What is being made new? It is done. The old here, finally, eternally, is gone. Just as on the cross, Christ Jesus cried, it is finished. Just as he will come back for us. Here we find the finality of I am making everything new. What is gone before is gone. We've kind of come full circle. We've come full circle from the perfect beginning to the broken middle to Jesus pulling us eh, eh, out of our sinfulness to the reality of the world just now back into that perfect unity with God. Everything will be new and all that are in Christ will be made pure in his presence. Because that cycle of life that, 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 that cycle of, uh, of struggle and of sin and of tears and of death and of mourning and of hurting, of pain, will be gone. And what will become a reality is the words that we read uh, a few weeks ago in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. The challenge for us here on earth is, despite everything else in this life, we are still called to these words. We are still called to rejoice and rejoice and rejoice. How can we trust any of this? Because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the A and the Z. He is the beginning and the end. He is the giver of the water of life. And that's why we are all sitting here on a Sunday morning. Because we come to celebrate the wonderful victory of the risen king. We come to celebrate and worship the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The God that we absolutely can trust and rest on. And as we read of the water in here. As he says to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. I think of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. Everyone who drinks of this water, of that water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Two things. There are many people round about us who thirst and are not satisfied. There are many who will seek in our world to quench their thirst with whatever ways the world has to offer. Without batting an eyelid, the one who gives the, the water that will eternally quench thirst. Because you see, nobody is obviously worthy of this water. Not one is worthy of Jesus. Not the Samaritan woman, not the disciples, not you, not I. But just this picture reminds us that nobody is too far gone for the grace of God. You go and you read that encounter. Jesus knew everything about this woman. He knew her innermost sin. 
he knew about the men that she had on the go. And still he offered her salvation. Still he offered restoration to her soul. And this morning, the same offer that was there to the Samaritan woman is there for you if you don't know Jesus. That your soul can be satisfied, not just in what is to come, but in the midst of where you are right now. Because that saviour will satisfy your soul. Maybe you know that saviour this morning, but you've taken your eyes off him and that water, the, the eternal water and the satisfaction of Jesus just doesn't quite cut it. Well, I would encourage you this morning to use it as an opportunity to refix your eyes on him. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh this morning. That we might once again have such an awesome sense of the great and the redeeming love of God. And the second thing from that is that we should be as burdened for the lost as Jesus is. He came with the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. And he proved it time and time again on earth. And you know, Revelation is, it is a wonderful book for believers. But it will not let us shake the reality for those that are not in Christ. How wonderful heaven is. How tragic hell is. How horrendous an eternity of damnation is. And the brutal reality for us is how many of our friends and how many of our families, how many people that live in our streets is that the reality for just now? It is certainly the reality for much of Hamilton and much of Scotland. Some of the latest figures suggest that it is as small as 2% of the Scottish population are Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Our country is on a horrendous trajectory. What are we doing about it? Hell is the reality for nobody, for anybody that is not in Christ, no matter how good they might be. But it is a reality that should burden us and make us want to do something. I once listened to a sermon by a guy called Paul Washer to a youth group, and I wouldn't advocate this, but he basically stood in front of them and screamed at them, your friends are all going to hell and you don't care. And it definitely isn't a method of trying to engage people in evangelism and mission I would advocate. But I just remember at the time that it cut me to the core because actually it was what I needed to hear. Because it can so often be true of me that if I truly and deeply love someone and care about somebody, I should care deeply about the eternal condition of their soul. I don't want separation and damnation for them. But I want to rejoice with, uh, with them uh, of my Saviour. I want those that don't yet know the Lord Jesus to be gathered with the saints for eternity. We might not say it, but we can so often be arrogant with the gospel. Like it's our precious little thing for nobody else to know about. But that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus spoke to anybody, Jesus spoke to everybody with the sole intention of redeeming them and bringing them back. Would our time 
just in the end of the very end of the Bible, would it just bring in us a greater urgency for evangelism? Would it help us realise that sharing the good news of Jesus isn't somebody else's job? Because I think arguably we've lived in a nation where it's been somebody else's job for a long time and it hasn't gone very well for us. Let's commit to prayer. Let us commit to prayer for opportunities with our family members, our friends, our neighbours. Let us pray for gospel opportunities with them. Let's pray for boldness for us as we share that good news of Jesus because it's scary. But you know, heaven will be so filled with women like this Samaritan woman. It will be, the heaven will be so full of people. Sinful people, broken people like you and me. That someone took time to share the good news of Jesus with. Finally. These heavenly citizens are an overcoming people. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. The promise of victory and of overcoming isn't just for like the spiritual elite. But because we are the children of God, we shall inherit all this. I don't often feel terribly victorious. I often don't feel like I'm overcoming very much. In fact, at times I can feel like the complete opposite. But there is such a wonderful promise in here for us. You see, it can be really easy for us to get some of this mixed up. And a lot of our Western thinking does this. But this idea of, you know, when we get more on top of the more that we already have, it's God blessing us, that, 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 that we're living our best life now, that, that we're thinking about how we can be victorious day on day. And, and there's just so many concepts that, that just distort what it means to be victorious and what it means to overcome. But whether it's the first century or today, God has overcome And when we bring this eternal uh, focus to it, when we look forward, we see that overcoming. We see that victory that has been won by the Lord Jesus for us. After a great Chicago fire in 1871, the evangelist D.L. Moody went to survey the ruins of his house. The fire was one of the key moments that started uh, his incredible journey as an evangelist. And a friend came by and said to him, I hear you've lost everything. Well, Moody said, you understood wrong. I have a good deal more left than I lost. What do you mean? The friend asked. I didn't know you were that rich. And Moody opened his Bible and he turned to Revelation chapter 21 verse 7 and he said, He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God. We come together as God's people because we believe in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that he is defeated sin and grave and we believe that that is worth celebrating 
we will shortly take part in communion uh, as we will take bread together and, and drink the wine together as symbols of the body that was broken for us uh, and the blood that was shed for us. Do you know, this stuff is almost beyond our ability to conceive. How glorious the future is for us. How much more we will know the presence and the peace of God. But friends, just know this morning that if you are in Jesus, you are his. That you can be satisfied in him. And that we can know the victory over death for all eternity because of what Jesus Christ has done human history begins in a garden and it ends in a city we will one day gather with all the citizens of the new heaven and the new earth joining with generations and generations of faithful believers that is what we look forward to and for now as Christ, as we wait for Christ to return, our job is to remain faithful to him. Would we do so? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that despite our sinfulness and our brokenness and how far short of you we fall, you love us. That for those who call upon your name, you redeem us. One day you will call us home to live in the eternal presence of our very God. God, would you encourage us this morning? The hope that we have in you, what it will become in eternity, but also that God that we can know in the here and now, that can empower us and embolden us. As we do our best, as we try to follow Jesus, Lord, would your spirit, Lord, would your spirit empower us. We thank you that you are at work in our midst. We thank you that you are at work amongst your people throughout this world. And we ask, Lord, that we would just know more of you. In your name I pray. Amen.